1: Hello.
2: Hello. <clears throat> podcast Network Asia.
3: Welcome to She Talks Peace, a podcast that highlights the role of women peacebuilders around the world in bringing lasting peace and security to their communities. Eavesdrop into their conversations and get to know their stories. From the Philippines to Malaysia, from Indonesia to Palestine, from Myanmar to the United States. Their dreams and their hopes for a world without violence and a world where every woman and girl can be whoever she wants to be. Hosted by Amina Rasul Bernardo, President of the Philippine Center for Islam and Democracy, and Dina Zaman, a Malaysian journalist and co founder of Iman Research. This is She Talks Peace.
2: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of She Talks Peace. I'm Amina Rasul of the Philippine Center for Islam and Democracy, greeting you from
1: Manila. And my co-host... Hello everyone, Ramadan Karim. It's me, Dina of Iman Research Malaysia. Welcome, Amina. You're all heading, getting ready for the election, stress.
2: Yes. That was a very long yes. Okay, yeah. What does that mean? Well, a little uh, maybe a little over two weeks to go. Um, Bong Bong Marcos um, still has a big lead, but seems to be slowing down. Vice President Lenny Robredo is uh, picking up, but at, uh, as of I mean, if elections were held today, it would still be Bong Bong Marcos. Uh, who would win now the other uh, five candidates uh I doubt very much there's going to be any positive developments. I think there's going to be cannibalism you know their vote are going to be taken by either bong bong Marcos or uh, lenny Robredo, but let me tell you, Dina. I would say that 95% maybe of my friends and my networks here, they're all with Lenny Robredo. Five percent, maybe more or less, are for Bongbong Marcos. And um, I, do, I, I, I don't know about you. So how about the Malaysian politics, Dina?
1: Any any update? <laughs> Well, I think everyone, okay, we're getting a lot of, uh, what do you call that? Goodie bags, yeah? So, today, is I, like, yeah. I like goodie bags. <laughs> well, by tomorrow, according to our ministers, there'll be a lot more uh, goodie bags when it comes to international travel. Uh, tolls, uh, you know, the road tolls and all that. They'll be abolishing the fees for eat. Oh. Uh, basically, we know that elections is coming. So, as I said in the last one, right, where there may be the MOU between Bersatu, PH Army actually, end in July. Um, Possibly, we're looking September, October for the new elections. But honestly, I think because the opposition has, you know, has not performed well at all, I do believe that Barista National, AMNO, will come back. Ah, okay. Um, AMNO is, what, like 40 years old now? Those more than that, you know, they've ruled us for over sixty years. You know, Barisan
2: national Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. my God. Yeah, that's that's right. You know, all of this, all of this uh, talk about politics, really driving me, driving me crazy. Especially with a little over two weeks to go. So I don't know, Dina. I, I take refuge in my tiny, tiny, tiny garden. Uh, in here in Quezon City. I don't know if I told you. I planted Chinese honeysuckle in okay. my tiny garden. And uh-huh. it's also called Rangoon Creeper. Ooh, I don't like that name. Or Drunken Sailor. Both names are really weird. <laughs> okay. I bought the plant maybe eight months ago. And uh we built a very, very simple arbor so that it could creep. Maybe that's why it's called the Rangoon Creeper. So it could creep up and cover the arbor. Well, success. This is one plant I didn't kill. It's okay. now flowering okay. profusely. And uh-huh. the scent is so sweet. So I sit there and... uh yeah. And just smelling it and looking at the beautiful white and red flowers uh, takes me to another place. I want to plant another one near my bedroom window.
1: Wouldn't that be oh. great?
2: Because this creeper, this drunken sailor, uh, it it um, the scent comes out very strongly at night. So maybe oh, no. I plant near my bedroom window... It might be nice, but I don't know about the name Drunken Sailor. It gives me nightmares. (laughs) All
1: right. All right. Yeah. You know, I think people just don't see the connection between the environment and peace and how we live, yeah? Uh, I don't know. With the way things are going, right, uh, I do believe climate change is already here, you know? Yeah. uh, Yeah. And I think you mentioned, you know, briefly but maybe a few weeks ago, right, that one of the environmentalists that the Philippines looks up to was the late Ben Dumaliam, who founded the Masungi Geo-Reserve Foundation. And I think that's something which all of us should strive for instead of shopping malls, you know? <laughs> yeah, you have good walking shoes, Dina. Yeah, <laughs> I do. But yeah, I, I think that you know, when we talk about environmentalism, people think about, you know, cute koalas, baby seals, whales. Beautiful, endangered animals. But it's just more than that, you know. I mean, for one, when our mountains are denuded or stripped by irresponsible mining, strong rains and typhoons, washing away nutrients from the soil. I mean, all this has an impact on agriculture, nature, and our lives. I mean, what do you think, Amina?
2: Yeah, I know exactly how you feel. I now live in the city, but I was born and grew up on an island. In, in the south, uh, I grew up on Holo Sulu, and uh, native wildlife and plants were not endangered at the time. You know, dina at uh, dusk, you could hear the sounds of birds from the mountains, and the mountains oh, wow. were all covered forests. Uh, one of them, which is called Kalau, uh, hornbill. Um, nobody hears the Kalau anymore in in my in my home. So I, I, I know exactly, you know, how that feels. There's, um, I was researching uh, because I was looking into plants and, and all that and endemic uh, species and uh, quite by chance, I saw an article in National Geographic about that Masungi georeserve that you just mentioned and, um, that, that guy you mentioned, Ben Dumaliang, he's an environmentalist who started this um, rehabilitation project decades ago. And he rehabilitated um, a land area that was stripped and bare and is in the mountains of um, Rizal. It's not so far away from where I am. It's like maybe two, three hours And uh, what used to be stripped and bare and dead today is a fabulous place where endemic plants and wildlife have returned and are flourishing. I I hope to visit that place soon because it seems the foundation that runs it, they have ecotourism. That That would be really great, right? I mean, sustainable you're you're able to protect the environment in a very sustainable way because you're getting paid to to take care of the of the environment yeah that's the thing you're absolutely right that people do not see the connection between environment and peace and yet we all know here in Southeast Asia majority of our people are dependent on agriculture for their livelihood. When agriculture suffers, poverty shoots up. And guess who are the easy recruits to criminality and violent extremism? Agriculture suffers. Can you just imagine, Tina, every time there's uh, huge typhoons and our denuded forests are washed and you have landslides and the nutrients from the soil. Are just washed out to sea. I I, I don't know. You know. Um, I know people in mining, but they say that they're responsible miners. They take care of their environment. But when you look at majority, especially the small time mining, they may get rich quick. They may have employment for a little while. But when everything is taken out of the soil and the miners leave, then the entire community suffers. So um, it's no surprise that uh, you have armed conflict in in those areas where unsustainable development really destroys the environment, which makes
1: um, poverty suffer. You know, this is why we have, you know, Friends, right? And our guest, who is a friend? We need environmentalists to talk about this. And today's guest is the daughter of the man you mentioned earlier on, Ben Dumaliang, And her sister, Billy, have continued the work of their father. So to all our guests, Ben Dumaliang is the managing trustee of the Masungi Geo Reserve Foundation, a conservation project powered by geotourism, education and sustainable development, located in Baras, Rizal, Philippines. And in 2015, she founded the Matsungi Tourism Foundation, which has now received various accolades for destination stewardship with the World Travel and Tourism Council in 2018 and Sustainable Tourism from the United Nations World Tourism Organization 2019. And last year, Matsungi won the top prize in global water partnerships in August 2021 Water Changemaker Awards for speaking truth to power, overcoming inertia, and forming collaborations on watershed, watershed rehabilitation. Anne is also a National Geographic Explorer and Ashoka Fellow and has recently represented Masungi in the prestigious 21st Global Summit of the WTTC, attended by 600 industry leaders and 20 government representatives in April 2022. Welcome, Anne. Wow. hi wow. Thank you for having National me. Geographic
2: Explorer Anne maliang
4: Welcome,
2: Anne. Hi,
4: thank you again for the time to speak and to, you know, talk about our stories and experiences. I appreciate all the time that you both have put in having a podcast like this, you know, just to empower women and to have space for conversations around peace. Something, you know, a lot of people tend to forget about, but it's foundational to just having anything and everything working
2: and going. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that. Thanks for the the encouragement, Anne. Anne, National Geographic Explorer. That was about the Masungi Geo Reserve Foundation and your dad's legacy. What was it like when when he started? You were kids when he started, right? And, and then yeah. that's what it's like now. Well, he, he's still very active up until now.
4: Um, he really treats it as his vocation. But when we first arrived there, you know, as children, we were, my sister and I would be six or seven years old. It was a completely barren landscape. We would be under the heat of the scorching sun because there was no forest cover at all. Uh, We were playing with goats and playing with the grass that's been cut down just so people could pass through. And that's basically what the place looked like very early on. And um, through the years from 1996 all the way to 2016, I've seen how my dad and his team of engineers have taken care of the place. And, you know, it wasn't easy, clearly. I'd see him on the phone talking about our rangers getting harassed, them getting taken by members of law enforcement for things that they haven't done. And so very early on, it was clear that it's a very challenging endeavor. And there was also a lot of, you know, injustice that's involved when it comes to
2: giving a voice for our forest. So... so And... let go back a little bit. Why would law enforcement agents harass you when you're trying to protect the, the environment and make it better? It's such a complicated question to answer. But
4: if you look at the environment, a lot of people really um, tend to see it as... Just something to give away, even if it is a natural resource, it is a resource of the country, you know, that contributes to the well-being of everyone. That I think is something that's very difficult for people to see and quantify. And so it becomes very easy for people to maltreat it, for people not to value it the way it should be valued. So if you look at, say, for instance, water, the idea of water. A lot of people in upland communities, of course, see it as a very important, vital part of life. As long as there's water flowing, the trees um, are healthy, you have drinking water for yourself. Minus health services and education, you're pretty much set <laughs> if you're a forest-dependent community, right? Um, if that water source gets destroyed... What it looks like now is people are buying water from water providers. It kind of looks like your GDP shoots up no, for that particular area. Your economic indices look like they're shooting up. But in truth, the quality of life deteriorated. Right. So there's just a lot of gaps when it comes to understanding the place of nature for the quality of life of people. And because of that, it becomes there easy for people to take advantage of it. So say for instance, when we encounter violence, um, this always happens during the election year or months leading to elections. Um, so typically if you look at rural areas, not well to gen not to generalize, but a lot of people would still get, I guess, resources by either selling land or allowing extraction of forest resources. Yeah. And that creates violence on the ground, conflict with the people who are stewarding and caring for locations like ours. Yeah.
2: You know, Dina, that, that reminds me of, uh, Something that's happening in Tawi-Tawi, um, uh, which is uh, a province composed of so many islands, and it's closer to to Indonesia. And there's one island that has uh, a lot of minerals that China wants. And, you know, our people, I mean, those who are in, in mining, are just selling the land for... Soil, without really considering that the, the rare earths, uh, the minerals that are in that soil are are so expensive. And now the erosion of, of the soil, it's killing the um, seaweed industry and islands are going to disappear. So it's really great, at least that you've got um, The Geo Reserve Foundation taking care of that area in Baras. What's it like now?
4: It's now restored. It's now reforested in 2017. And we had a chance to meet Secretary Gina Lopez when he was, she was still serving in the NR and she saw what's, what we've done. I guess it kind of reminded her as well of her struggles when she was trying to protect and restore the La Mesa Eco Park. And she invited us, actually pushed us (laughs) to contribute to her attempt to restore our forests and take care of our natural resources. So basically, she asked us to restore 2,700 hectares of land in total, some 2,400 more than what we initially had. Yeah, it's huge. So it kind of quadrupled. Wow, and big. we were supposed to do that using the funds that we have raised through ecotourism, which to be honest is, um, working. It's incredibly challenging, but at least we are able to take it forward in a place that to be honest has been continuously deteriorating despite being a protected area and one that is so important to a capital of 20 million Filipinos.
1: All right. Um, I'm curious about ecotourism, yeah? I mean, okay, of course, we're, you know, we're not thinking about profitability, but how do you make it sustainable for you, for the work you do? Okay, how do you make ecotourism sustainable, you know, to pay, to do the work that you do and at the same time invite tourists, you know? How do you educate tourists to say, look, this land is precious and all that? How have you been doing it? Yeah, I mean, if Dina and I come to visit, what can we do in your
2: geo-reserve? Remember, I'm old. (laughs) (laughs) No, you're
4: not. (laughs) Not that old. Okay, um, the approach in Masungi is three-pronged. We put heavy emphasis on protection because, of course, we need to protect the resources that we're showcasing. We supplement that with education. People need to understand why something needs to get protected before they could even take action to defend it, right? And then there's the sustainable development bit, which is economically really what's sustaining all of the other work that needs to be done. So the way we do ecotourism in Masuni is actually more appropriately called geotourism. It focuses on the landscape, weaving in elements of of plants, animals, culture, community to create a unique sense and identity of place that people would be proud of, right? So it's pride of place that we want to create, to create, you know, that impetus to protect this entire landscape. So how we have it move in sync With the protection part is a lot of fun, to be honest. It goes from planning the area to developing it, to maintaining it, to managing the visitors, crafting the interpretation and the experiences so that it creates love of place and having it make sure that our community of people around us benefit. So speaking of experiences, what you can do when you come over, um, we have trails. The first trail called the Discovery Trail is an immersion in the karst ecosystem. The goal here is to have people understand what is so unique about it. The second trail that we have is called the Legacy Trail, and it is an immersion in the history of deforestation and reforestation movement in the country. And right now, we also have a garden picnic. Uh, so the garden picnic, this isn't as you know, challenging. <laughs> it's not as challenging. You can sit or you can sit around um a park area and we give an introduction to the native trees and plants of the philippines and the and the process so um those are the main experiences that we offer. We also curate of course based on needs of say schools and companies and wellness activities
2: what what can we see when, when we go there what endemic species? Can we see and the and, uh, flora? They will
4: be biodiversity that's unique um, and inherent to karst ecosystem. So what we have in Masumi is a forest over limestone ecosystem. Our rock formations uh star of the show really are 60 million-year-old cars that rose from the depths of the oceans to the surface because of plate tectonic activity and volcanic eruptions. You can imagine yeah. how much time it took, right? Dramatic. Yeah, for it to be above um, the sea um, right now. And honestly, this also really ties into the history of the Philippines as, as an archipelago, but I'm not going to go into that. Yeah, so the lion limestone landscape also influences the life on it. So when it comes to plants, what you will find inside Mizumi are mol- molav forests for the hardwood that, that would be growing. Unfortunately, a lot of them are still young because we've only been restoring this place for 20 years. Yeah, and they do grow very slowly. You also have a lot of air plants and rock plants. Um, basically, these are plant species that do not necessarily need the soil. To thrive, they could rely on moisture from the air, like orchids, yeah, yes, exactly. Like orchids, um, hoyas uh,
2: ferns, uh-huh. oh, yeah, oh, exactly. Anne, Anne, uh huh. Oh, and and uh, you have something rare there, uh, jade, green, yeah, jade, jade vine,
4: green, uh, vine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, the jade vine, um, um. Most vines, actually, I think more than 80%, we just find close to the equator. Um, and we're lucky because there's this vine, a liana, called the jade vine, that exists in Masungi. It blooms once a year for a period of about two weeks. Uh Typically happens between the months of February to April. So we're at the tail end of its blooming season. And the one that we have in Masungi was actually only discovered in 2015. And can only be found in the wild, at least doc- in a doc what's documented, can only be found in four different areas in the country, usually around horse formations. Oh. Yeah. So the one that you'd find at the back of the five peso coin of the Philippines, that's the jade variety. Also very rare, but not quite as rare as the
2: purple one, which we have. Wow. That, that's, that's pretty amazing. I have to go. It's gorgeous. And, and I'm not going to see it if I go now because it's tail end already. So. You can see
4: it, but um, it's not going to be at its peak blooming period. Yeah. Anymore,
0: unfortunately. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online.
2: It, it, it's really fascinating that you know, you're doing so much good. You're employing a lot of people to, and, and they're getting paid and they're taking care of the environment, which you need to, you know, to cut down pollution and to make sure that the watersheds are going to be taken care of. But your rangers get attacked. I, I read last um, February, was it? That uh, there was a delegation that went to Congress because rangers were being attacked by resort owners who have found a way to build inside the sanctuary. Building, but, but building research inside the protected area is illegal, right? So so what happened and what happened to your lobbying in Congress? Is anything going to, you know, is anything positive going to come out of that?
4: Um, well, the truth is it's the election period already, so it's quite hard to get anything moving and going at this time. Um, oh yeah. Correct. Uh, unfortunately, though, um, this is also, I guess, the time when a lot of, um, more underhanded activities to close down the year does happen. So there is actually a move at the time to get our agreement cancelled. Ironically, right? So basically, we erase all of these anomalies in the watershed and the top response, because, well, Secretary Simatu has resigned um, unexpectedly. So, And the response is that we will review your memorandum of
2: agreement. Oh, my goodness.
4: (laughs) Yeah, so that one, ironically, is moving much faster than getting the quarry canceled, than getting all of these legal resort owners out of the area. Yeah. So why do we encounter so much violence on the ground? You know, just to give some more context, the Philippines actually is the most dangerous country in the world for not in the world. We're always top three in the world, but in Asia for land defense. (laughs) That's,
2: that's, I don't know if I should be proud or top three, huh? (laughs) For, for the last decade, we're always part of the top, top
4: three or top five. Yes. And, you know, in our current time, that's even worsened by disinformation. And particularly for our parks and protected areas, we actually have a biodiversity financing gap of 80 percent, meaning that what it takes to implement the conservation initiatives and goals of the country, the financing for that is missing by 80 percent. And that really reflects on how our areas are managed and monitored. So the going average for the Philippine protected areas is one ranger is to 4,000 hectares, which honestly is a ridiculous land area to manage for just one person. Um, And because of that, what we end up with are a lot of remote precious sites with No management, no enforcement, and guns, goons, and gold still ruling. And so Masungi comes in these spaces, you know, to promote and become checks and balances to help and complement government um, for the work that needs to be done. But what we see in the field really, really is, really is crazy. So in the area where we are working in, which portions of which are um, part of the Upper Merkina Watershed. If you'd remember in 2020, when Ulysses happened, there was a report that our watershed is completely protected. It's fully intact. That is something that was debunked by us, other conservationists, scientists, because on the ground, it's only 11% protected. Where did that information even come from, (laughs) right? So that was a huge shock. And even a Senate investigation happened to evaluate and see what exactly was going wrong. And a lot of what was going wrong has something to do with land grabbing and development aggression. So basically, the way things are structured now is you have local DNR offices, and they're not even on the ground, right? And they're mostly in their offices. Um, these local, these offices basically are the ones giving the information about our protected areas sharing if there are encroachments, et cetera. Now, if you're unlucky, you know, corruption and poor governance could also come into play such that what's actually happening on the ground isn't reflected on the documents that's forwarded upwards or isn't reflected in the reports um, that are given. And so how that manifests on the ground is that people might not have tenure, might not have the right permits. And so your map will show that there's no one there, but if you actually go on the ground, you will see that there are two-story buildings, um, resorts with five big pools that are moving in that area. And that's what we're finding when we got on the field. What we're finding and discovering is that you would have police generals claiming 500 you know, 300 to 500 hectares of land for themselves. You will have past DNR officers building a resort on top of dams that are internationally funded and basically turning it into their swimming pools. You have, what else? You have resort, I'm sorry, not resort. You have real estate um, managers, um, people who basically know how to run permits and licenses for big companies building resorts inside our protected areas yeah so that's what we're finding on the ground and that's what we're trying to to solve um, and they're not used to being enforced on, they're not used to all of these things, being able to reach a bigger
1: audience Dina, does that happen in Malaysia as well? We have quite a number of uh, wildlife reserves and all that but just listening to Anne, we're not dissimilar, there's always that tug-of-war with not just politicians, big business, but also royalties, you know. A lot of them tracts of uh, land that was given to them. So um, it's messy. I have a friend who runs Earth Lodge in Kuala Muda in Perlis, and he said that while the state is supportive of his efforts because it's beautiful, they've got, you know, tigers, elephants, you name it, and while he says that the royalties have been very friendly to him, you cannot deny the logging that's happening there. So that logging now is actually, well, you know, it's just not very good for the wildlife reserve because when you strip that reserve or the trees, I mean, the elephants can see roads, etc., etc. It's It's a long, long road, you know. I mean, I think at the end of the day, it's not about political elites or royals or anyone. It's about man's greed. It's also about, you know, uh, how do we live? I know we all need to develop, and You know, we need electricity, we need Wi-Fi, we need everything. But is there a way to develop our worlds without having to resort to wars, to, you know, killing nature and all that? Yeah, so and on that note, how do you use the work that you're doing with your sister, your late father's, to promote peace then how is this part of peace building
4: my dad by the way is still you know he's still
1: around <laughs> okay oh i'm really sorry <laughs> okay, so. no oh,
2: by, the, by the way dina we have a superstitious belief um one of the, the tribes in the philippines if you say someone is dead when he's alive it's actually lucky. That means you're adding
1: years to. I'm lucky. Did you, do, do, do you have the same the same superstition in Malaysia? I don't know about that. but I'll blame this on my eye. <laughs> on my <laughs> now one eye can't see anything because it's eye drop. I apologize Dan, and to you and your family. Okay. <laughs> no, don't worry about I, it. Don't no okay. worry. Yeah, but don't worry too much. Okay, I can retract this. How does the work that your family does, right? How does this contribute to peace building?
4: Yeah. It's um, how, how do I get started on this? I'm so many ways to go around the question, but um, from what we are seeing when we come on the field, when we go into these remote areas and protected areas, like with what I said, there's very little enforcement and there's very little management that's in place. And I've, as I've described the actors in the area, um, Aren't exactly simple people, you know, the ones who are doing the illegal work, the ones you will bump heads with, they're erring government officials, they're erring enforcement officers. And because of that, there is a climate of fear. There is a, um, a, a perception, um, that you are helpless if you are in these communities and that whoever know has guns whoever has money whoever has gold they're just the ones who rule and you'll just have to live with it um and this manifests really i guess the most when it comes to indigenous people in the area Um, the mindset you know i mean this was born out of centuries of colonialism is they just cling on to who is most powerful they don't they do not um they they back away from conflict and issues because it could really mean life and death for them. Um, given, you know, some actors involved and given their lack of, um, lack of a voice, <laughs> lack of an ability to reach a bigger audience that could help, you know, protect them. So by being able to go into these areas with our rangers, by being able to monitor these zones that tend to not be, you know, visited even by government, we're able to find out, you know, the truth about what's going on on the field. Who among these are really the farmers? Who among these are really indigenous people? Who's just pretending and abusing the rest of the community for their own benefit? By that, we're able to surface the wrong that's happening in the field and have you know, and push for law enforcement in the process. So an example that I would give when it comes to this is, God, there are so many examples. There was a time when there was a huge field that was burned down and we saw it by a drone. It was very systematic. After one month, there were 11 new huts that were established in the watershed. When we went on the ground, there were people who immediately popped out of nowhere and told us, we're farmers from Metro Manila, we were affected by the pandemic and now we're here to plant um, goods and produce us. Um, we look around some more and there were security guards, armed security guards. Um, and apparently later on, it turns out that it was a land grabbing attempt, right? If you're only there for a day, you wouldn't know that. They had the spills ready. They had their covers ready. But farmers with security guards. And they had security guards with them. It's quite fishy, isn't it? So um, we were able to hurdle that, right? But had we not been able to detect that, that would have paved the way for more land encroachment, more um, areas that are meant to be for forest dependent communities being given to people who do not deserve it and people who do not need it. And, um, later on, that would lead to more development aggression that could impact safety in the area, that could impact the quality and, um, quantity of water that's available for these forest dependent communities. Um, so the enforcement side truly does help. Um, on the other, on the flip side, the tourism also helps, right? Because, uh, tourism also gives a level of visibility that these communities previously do not have. It gives them a voice and access to a larger audience that they typically do not get to interact with. And that's typically taken advantage of by local lords, by violent people on the ground. Um, So for instance, if you look at, honestly, the violence encountered by other protected areas is so much more than the violence that we encounter in Masumi. People literally die. Um, it's a, it's a very taxing, uh, field, you know, vocation to be a part of. And it really re- entails a level of selflessness. <laughs> um, yeah. So for us, even if all of these things are happening, um, to our organization, at least we have our cameras, we have our followers, and we know that they will call out to hold people accountable for what's going on in the field. And that levels the playing field a bit more, um, still allows for change to happen on the ground, even if the formal structures may not be in place just yet to support conservation. I hope that all makes sense <laughs> as far
1: as peace building itself.
2: Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: Okay, what would be your one-year plan, five-year plan? You know, the world is becoming more, well, let's just put it, conflict is going to be part of our world in the next five years, whether we like it or not. So what are you doing to save your your reserve? What are you doing to save nature?
4: Our immediate goal for Masumi is really to secure the land that's involved, it's we've managed to recover about and the least monitor continuously about 2000 hectares out of the 2700 hectares so you know despite all of these huge dilemmas that we're throwing out online we are moving forward and we look forward to closing all of that and really establishing this reforestation site you know as a world-class success story for restoration there are also other activities of course to supplement that on the um, tourism and that we'd like to have both within our development zones and for the community. Um, the goal, to be honest, is to really establish a geopark in the area. So this goes just way past our area. Um, this means involving everyone in the area, really, really putting together like what I said, the, the culture, the people, the landscape, the plants, the animals, the waterways together and scaling the understanding of that and the locality that we belong to. But at the same time, I also want, of course, this model to um, be scaled in other locations in the country. The need is so huge, to be honest, it can be overwhelming. Um, but a lot of areas do need it and we do want to give you know, groups, communities, the capability and the opportunity to protect the places that they love. Just like what we have been blessed to be able. To- Hold up!
1: What was that? Oh, you know, there's a lot of what we have to do, yeah. Uh, it's peace building, you know, environmentalism, climate change, conflict. Gosh, it never ends, you know. This, it, yeah. Adina, I have a controversial yeah. question for Anne. Okay, if
2: if the rain drowns out my voice, sorry, I will just. <laughs> but Anne, I actually can't hear the rain. Oh, um, good. Yeah. Anne, Um, your continued success in protecting the the geo-reserve and making it grow is going to be dependent on the next administration's mindset. You have got seven presidential candidates. Do you think that the environment and its protection is uh, on the agenda? of the seven, or put it another way, who among the presidential votes would have the uh, as a priority protecting the environment?
4: Honestly, what I'm seeing from people's platforms, quite disappointing. Um, 2030 is coming, that's critical for the entire world and all the more for a country that is at risk for climate change. <laughs> One of the top countries that are at risk for climate change. So I definitely expected something more aggressive, when we're talking about 2030, everything, all of the initiatives that are relevant for them would have been crafted by either this administration or, you know, to catch up this next one. So there's a lot to work on to even be able to meet our climate um, and restoration targets. Um, when it comes to the presidential balls, the people who I see who really have a grounding on the issue, which is, you know, just so important, would be Kali um, Odi, to be honest. And, um, VP Robredo. So uh, the grounding, the understanding of how things go and how things work in communities, um, based on what I have seen is just so important to really realize what would make vital needed change, you know, to empower communities and lift up this country altogether. Um, so yes,
2: they're the two who I'm seeing. You know, Dina, my, uh, one of the positive effects of the pandemic, pollution was down. And my husband suffers from asthma. Every time he leaves the house to go to work, every day he has, he has, uh, he has problems because of the pollution. When the pandemic hit us, factories shut down, cars weren't on the road. Pollution levels uh, went down. And you know, if you don't protect the lungs of Earth, which are our forests, then pollution will go unabated. So it's, it's, uh, it's really quite important to, to protect the environment. And I think our, our presidential polls should really uh, focus a little bit more on this. By the way, Anne, why do you say 2030 is uh, an important day. Oh, it's... um,
4: 2030 is an important year. Um, this decade is actually an important year because it's the decade for ecosystem restoration. And as far as the conference of parties are concerned and the environment sector is confirmed, concerned, there are lots of climate targets that are set for 2030. And that's where all of these climate negotiations, you know, all of these, um, policy and radical action towards reducing emissions, et cetera, are hinged on. So 2030 is the year when we reassess if we really manage to keep, um, um, Keep temperatures, you know, to 1.5 degrees Celsius as an increase because we've made, there are lots of studies on the impact on, of that or not being able to reach that on biodiversity. Um, and not just on biodiversity, but it, by extension, um, agriculture, food production, you know, health and livelihood and disaster risk resilience, to be honest. Um, yeah. So going back to your question when you asked, if um, how it would be sold, conservation and restoration. I guess we can say for all of the candidates, it's really I believe the idea that what we have, you know, forests, natural resources, really are as time has already proven and as typhoons have already shown, they really are a disastrous resilience infrastructure. It's a public safety infrastructure that needs to be cared for the same way your gray infrastructure and your hospitals need to be cared for, right? So an example, we are in the watershed, the Upper Marikina watershed, and there are lots of studies around that already. If you just look at siltation control services um, that this watershed can provide, if it is healthy, meaning it's 70 to 100% forested, the siltation control services that it can provide would be equivalent to 10,500 dams. And you can only imagine how expensive dams oh, wow. are. The maintenance costs, yeah. the replacement costs, the development cost to put this out, right? That's in the billions um, for maintenance. That's in the billions to put it out. And that's a true cost. That's a true cost of destroying our forests and watersheds. Having to pay for that, um, having to pay for now for the loss of water, the degradation of water quality, the degradation of our soil to which agriculture and food security relies and depends on. Um, and so it, it's just so costly. Maybe something that's easier to understand was the impact of Ulysses. So this watershed connects from, um, you know, the upper reaches. They all drain out to the Marikina River, to the Pasig River, and out to Manila Bay. So what happens when your forests and the upper reaches disappear? Water runs down so fast. You know, the water in the city hasn't exited yet. The water from the mountains have already gone down and flooding happens. And we've seen that, right? We, we know that even if the storms aren't as strong, Apparently, it now just takes, what, 12 hours to 24 hours for the Marikina River to overflow and for people to have to ditch their homes and belongings because they will die if they stay. (laughs) So, of course, depends on a certain um, rainfall level. But we have seen um, it rushing faster and, you know, flooding faster than ever and then before. Um, When Ulysses happened, Marikina told us that they pay... No, they spend 3 million pesos, um, for food of evacuees every day. And they're in the evacuation center for two weeks. That's automatically having to spend. How much is that as we do the math? That's automatically having to spend 30 million pesos, um, plus plus, right? Um, And that's not counting in the trauma to people, the cost to business, the damage to infrastructure. It's
2: very costly to have our forest destroyed. Yeah. um, Dina was uh, making a point earlier about uh, the nexus between peace and the environment. You know, Dina, uh, where Anne is operating, uh, that's an area where the New People's Army also has a presence. And this is the armed group of the Communist Party of the Philippines, um, one of the insurgent groups in, in the country. And uh, with, with the, the disasters that Anne was describing, soil erosion, the flooding, and an influx of displaced people, uh, expansion of your poor and uh, higher poverty rates, who do you think are going to become the soldiers of the New People's Army? So, you know, if you're looking at, at uh, you know, containing uh, conflict and, uh, and, and insurgency, I mean, the influence of violent extremist thought, it seems logical. It looks like common sense, that you would start by looking at the the route and one of the routes is the environmental disasters that we're allowing to to happen in in our area, oh my goodness we are looking of we're looking at doing a tour in the geo reserve and here now we're thinking about you know <laughs> the the uh, the connection <laughs> between protecting that environment and the armed conflicts that you and I been have been worrying
1: about all of our adult lives. I, I just think that just listening to Anne today is that I think we cannot take Mother Earth for granted anymore. I forgot to tell you, I mean and, and yesterday, right? We've been having a lot of flash floods. So yesterday saw where we are, there was flash floods right after oh. KLCC and everything. People got home late. People were stuck in jams for a few hours. So climate change is here, you know, but we're still very greedy. And I don't think it's going to stop anytime soon. It's a climate crisis. People just want to Clim- Yeah, it is a climate crisis. But what do you do when you have governments, big business, saying we don't really care? Something that we have to talk about, but wow, Amina, we're actually closing up. Uh it's been like, yes, the time factor again. Well, is that a question to reflect on? The time again? Oh no, no, just realizing that. Oh my God, what a great conversation, and is ending. But then I, I really, really, I'd love to visit. uh, You know, your reserve. I took a stick peek at your website and I went, oh, this looks really wonderful. So, yeah, it's beautiful. How many hours away is it from Manila? An hour and a half. Isn't it? Yes, it's very near. Wow, it's nearer than I thought, Then,
2: It's easier to get to you than to go to Makati. Yes, that is
4: true. Because you'll be stuck in traffic going to Makati. <laughs> yes.
2: By the way, Anne, before, before we end, um, would, you, would you like to give a message of encouragement to the people listening? Um, more than 10% of our listeners are under 18 and encourage them to protect the planet, to protect Mother Earth and come and visit you at Masungi Geo Reserve Foundation. Yeah, um, there's there's so much that I would want to say. But
4: what I always tell kids is that um, the eco-anxiety that you're feeling, you know, it's not there for no reason. It's not something you shun away. It's something that you take action on. We feel anxious because we know now what's at stake more clearly than ever before. We know the impact on other people. And that's the kind of empathy, you know, that we need to get things moving forward. It's the kind of empathy that should be there um, when you take action so that you can take the right action and the right extent of action that's needed. So build on that, um, nurture that, still have fun, you know, and never um, discount what your voice and what your contribution can make. Billy and I were 22, 23 years old when we got started. Um, we started with our group of friends. And, you know, it's 2,000 hectares that's largely youth-led, that's largely supported by our guests. Literally, our guests are contributing their expertise in marketing, their expertise in media, their expertise in engineering and expertise. What we have is really a groundswell of people taking action. Never discount your capability of, Encouraging and getting other people to move and the power of community to overcome inertia for conservation and for change. Um, because it really starts from there. It really starts from there. Um, there's a quote that I want to end with and that I didn't actually think of ending with, but my sister reminded me of it last yesterday when we were, um, what were we doing? When we were reflecting <laughs> on a few things and so this is from this is a quote from miguel cervantes it goes when life it's perhaps to be too practical is madness to surrender dreams this may be madness too much sanity may be madness and the madness of all to see life as it is and not as it should be just a good point for reflection on how much effort we put in you know for the world that we actually want
2: yeah we 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 should see the world as it should be and not as uh, others would like it to be, especially those who don't really care very much for uh, for the future. And unfortunately, and if we um, don't uh, take radical action as sure. as you do, so important. <laughs> yeah, especially with the next administration then uh, 2030 is not going to look too good. But thank you so much, Anne. It's been fun uh, having this, this chat with you. I only hope that, you know, he could have had Billy as well. That would be great. True. Yeah, that, would been, that would have been fun. That would right. be really fun. <laughs> oh, Dina, they're also Kamikaze sisters.
1: Yeah, yeah, or oh, the environment, yeah, <laughs> yes. The dami sisters of the environment, <laughs> I've been featuring quite a you know it's a few sets of pairs of sisters. We should yes. do this often, yeah. So, thank you so much, Anne, for for joining us, Dina. Right. Any any parting words? No, this is the last week of the Ramadan, a fasting month. To all our friends of fasting, may your last week of fasting be wonderful. Thank you, and Thank you, everyone.
2: Thank you. Thank you. This is uh, Amina Rasul saying bye for now from Manila. And don't forget what Anne said about madness. Let's be mad for the right reasons. Reason. Thank right. you,
3: you all. Bye. Bye bye. She Talks Peace is brought to you in partnership with Podcast Network Asia and Podmetrics, the easiest way to monetize your podcast. For more information, check out their website at podcastnetwork.asia and podmetrics.co. The views and opinions expressed by the podcast creators, hosts, and guests do not necessarily reflect the official policy and position of Podcast Network Asia